Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Looking to prepay those property taxes as a result of changes in the tax overhaul plan? Tim Spies is partner in charge of Eisner Amper's Personal Wealth Advisors Group. He joins us now. Tim, thanks very much for being with us. I guess you've got a lot of people waiting on hold, calling you to ask, how do you do this? So go ahead, tell everybody, how do you do this? Well, um, if we're in New York, which many of your listeners are, uh, many of the municipalities and counties have already been posting warrants, and that's really the magic, the, the trick here. Warrants need to be posted on websites for there to be posted a liability, and that needs to happen in order for uh, taxpayers to first pay taxes this month, but then have it recognized as a bona fide payment. And uh, I have a short list of, of counties and where they are with respect to this in New York. I mean, Westchester is an outlier at the moment. Westchester is asserting they don't have time to do it. But with the executive order last week, that's exactly what the governor wants them to do. Uh, the executive order state of emergency was intended to have those municipalities and counties post those warrants. Now, when you say post those warrants, are those warrants general in nature or are they then somehow made specific to the individual taxpayer? The latter, the latter, Pim. They, right. they, they're, they're, they're the actual bill, you know, that you and I would, would use and receive. Now, you know, the, the, well, the discussions we're having now is call them in the municipality, uh, try to establish what your liability is. Call your mortgage holder. They might have. They might actually have notice of the warrant sent to them. They might have in their possession already. Uh, so th those are things to to really be doing. I would imagine. Well, I I shouldn't say it that, but uh, is it possible that this is uh, easier said than done? Because it is also important where the money comes from in order to prepay these taxes. Correct. Correct. So as many of us know, I mean, as homeowners, we, we, we oftentimes make the payment through the mortgage payment, and that's, that's held in escrow directly by the mortgage company, which is why, you know, I, we are proposing that that's another route. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can contact the municipality for the warrant. Remember, if the warrant exists, it would have already been issued also to the mortgage holder. So the issue, the, the, the matter is trying to determine where you send the check. Right. Uh, so it's deemed to be a proper, a proper payment. Right. And, and what I get getting at in terms of where the money comes from, it has to do, for example, if you are a joint filer, uh, if right. the money does not come from a joint account, that could be an issue. Um, I, I personally don't think so. I mean, if you're talking about a joint account holder, the most simple one, husband and wife, if I make the payment, um, sure, it's it's in my spouse's name as well, but that's seen to be a payment. We're jointly liable. Um, you know, the funds the funds are rather fungible in that regard. Right, but I'm saying um, if the funds exist in a single payer account. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it's a single payer account and that single payer is the mortgage holder, that's I believe it, where you're going with this is where your example is going to be 
is going to be critical. So, right. It has to be the yeah, same person. Exactly. It has to be the same person. Yeah, no. In other words, if you are not the mortgage holder, if it's held in a third-party name or in the name of a spouse, many people for tax planning purposes, they might have already moved it into someone else's name, uh, the money has to come from that same named account. Correct. Yeah. That's right. Uh, it, do you foresee this uh, being a bigger issue in 2018 from people who tried to pay, thought they paid, and aren't going to get the full deduction? Because in many cases, you're going to get that warrant or that bill once again in 2018. That, that's correct. We could for, foresee that that kind of confusion. Now, for many, many of our clients, we get involved in these matters, you know, through our, our family office practice or so forth. So, so matching up payments, absolutely. Um, having discussions about payments that were made, weren't credited properly, absolutely. There'll, there'll, be, a, there'll be a number of discussions uh, around this. And, and, and you're right. I mean, the rest of the week, uh, it's, it's going to be a state of flux in, in first, knowing if there's if the liability has been posted and then getting it to the right recipient, whether that's an escrow account, the mortgage company, the actual municipality, all of that will be going on. And yes, many things will be sorted out or have to be sorted out in Q1 of 18. Is it also the case that if you are, let's say, in an apartment house or a condominium co-op or whatever, that because those taxes typically are paid on a monthly basis and they are paid from one corporation to another, in other words, the managing agent would pay the uh, property tax, uh, that it can be a challenge to even find out how much is the property tax all at once. That that's correct as well. We've been we've been receiving emails and responding to just those things with co-op boards this week. Um, from a practical perspective, a co-op board, if if the if the 2017 monthly bills, as you're pointing out, are going to be fairly the same as 2018, it actually might be more might be easier uh, to send checks. In this case, you're talking about a co-op board. Co-op board would have a treasurer. Uh, homeowners, unit holders, and so forth could could cut checks to that individual person as the treasurer. That actually might be the more easy scenario. But but paying 12 months in advance uh, could also be allowed because it, it's a fixed in the terminal liability. It's under the agreement with the co-op and the resident. You know that's that's a bona fide debt. That's an obligation. Right. Uh, you, and if it's known now, you could pay that in December and have a tax deduction. I have a feeling you're going to be busy for the rest of the week, if not for the rest <laughs> of 2018. If it was just the week, Tim, it would be fine. It's going to last longer than that. <laughs> Indeed it is. <laughs> Always. Taxes. Thanks very much. Uh, Tim Spies is partner in charge of Personal Wealth Advisors Group for Eisner Amper. And, of course, you can follow them at, uh, on Twitter at uh, Eisner Amper, telling us about how to attempt to prepay your 2018 property taxes for that deduction. The U.S. dollar has had the worst year in more than a decade. So the question then becomes, what's going to happen next year? Here to help us answer this question is Lan Ann Nguyen, our FX reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins me here in our 1130 studio. 
Lanann, thanks very much for being here. Thanks, Pim. Let's start off with the yen. Let's start off in Japan. What is the outlook for the Japanese yen? We're trading around, what, 113 to the dollar right now? Yeah, that's right. And it seems like opinions are a little bit more divided on the yen. Some people think that the BOJ might start hinting towards a change in policy by the end of next year. Others are saying, no, they're nowhere near doing that. So uh, opinions are a little bit more mixed on the yen, I would say. We've got about not quite half and half uh, bullish bearish. But do these, but do anybody who talks about the yen, do they still regard it as the uh, risk off trade that when things go badly, you go to the yen? Yes, people are still talking about the yen as a risk off trade, but uh, they're more keen to look at whether the BOJ is going to be changing monetary policy anytime soon. And uh, it doesn't look like they're going to change next year, but maybe watching for some signals or some cues uh, from the BOJ that that might happen. Well, you provide the perfect segue because signals from the European Central Bank they seem to be ahead of the Bank of Japan. They're signaling that perhaps this whole experiment with quantitative easing and the purchases of bonds may be coming to an end if the economy is stronger. What's the outlook for the euro? Exactly. And that is what is propping up the outlook for the euro. Uh, we see, uh, or the analysts see, that the euro might rise about 1.7% next year. That's based on a median forecast. And so it seems like everyone is really bullish euro uh, and very bearish dollar next year. So that's kind of been the reversal of what we saw in sentiment at the beginning of this year. Right. But the dollar did have a terrible year, apparently, right? It did. It got crushed. Um, dollar bulls are really crushed this year. Uh, it's down almost 8%. Um, and all of those hopes for tax reform and infrastructure and stimulus in the U.S. have kind of been dashed. You know, they, they, the tax reform plan or the tax cuts haven't really had that shot in the arm for the U.S. economy that people are expecting. The Fed is slowly, slowly and gradual and everything is pretty Goldilocks. So there isn't that kind of sense of the raging bull in the U.S. market anymore. Does anybody find that that's an irony when you can get more by investing in a U.S. Treasury than you can investing in just about anything else, any other government paper, uh, particularly in Europe, and that we haven't seen this big flood of money going into the dollar to grab the equity returns that are already, you know, 20% for the uh, S&P 500. Sure. I think in the foreign exchange market, that's kind of a tired story. People priced that in two years ago or, you know, last year. Uh, and so uh, those gains that are to be had by buying the U.S. dollar have kind of dissipated because everyone says, OK, we know what the Fed's doing. We know that the U.S. economy is strong, but not going to you know, go through the roof. So what's next? Long, I guess long term in the FX market is by lunchtime, yes. something like that. All <laughs> right. A few uh, seconds from now. A few seconds. Well, uh, let's, you know, this is an outlier, I guess, but the Can uh, Canadian, uh, can't even pronounce it today, Scandinavian currency, Swedish krona, Norwegian krona, of course, the Norwegian krona linked to their uh, oil and uh well, their petro-rich uh, economy. Mm -hmm. What's the outlook for Scandinavian currencies? Well, again, these uh, are looking pretty good. If you're looking for buy winners in the G10 currencies, the Scandies are looking pretty nice just because uh, their emergency monetary policy settings are no longer needed. We've got this synchronized global growth. Economies are doing better around the world. And so as central banks catch up to the U.S., as uh, central banks start to change policy, decide to tighten, people think that these currencies are going to strengthen. But doesn't Sweden have negative interest rates? Sure. And so then if negative interest rates are no longer needed, if Sweden's economy is doing better, um, Dara Mayer from HSBC says, look, 
this emergency setting is not needed anymore. So why are they doing it? They've got to change. All right. So they, in other words, it's all about whether they are going to change their policy based on the performance of the economy. And that would then speak to a stronger uh, Swedish krona. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about uh, something closer to home and the Canadian dollar. Yes. Uh, really connected to what's going on in energy markets. Yes, as you mentioned before, with Norway, Canada is also a beneficiary of those stronger energy prices. So if uh, the energy prices stay around 60 bucks where they are right now, Canada does better. Again, the Bank of Canada doesn't need to you know, keep rates as low as, as they are, so it's going to think about tightening. And the, But the estimate was that they were going to raise maybe twice next year compared to the Federal Reserve, which would be a three-time or maybe even a four-time event. Sure, sure. And um, But relative to other central banks elsewhere, that's still on the active side. That's still on the kind of more firm, solid side. So right. that would be bullish for the currency. Uh, median forecasts are for it to rise about 2.7%. So that's um, pretty strong. All right. So things getting a little better for the uh, loonie. What about the uh, Australian, the Aussie dollar and the New Zealand dollar? Again, we're talking about commodity currencies here. So Australia, again, is going to do better as the commodity complex sort of picks up that central bank story. Again, you know, if they the RBA doesn't feel those emergency settings are necessary anymore. It's going to catch up with the rest of the central banks around the world and start to, you know, lean towards a more tightening posture. Just quickly, what's the most challenging aspect of covering the FX markets? Is it that it changes so quickly? I think it is that it changes very quickly. We saw, you know, these kind of flash moves in the euro over the Christmas period. Um, we can see things move very, very fast. And so that is pretty challenging, especially around, you know, non-liquid periods like we're talking end of year. You know, a little move um, can then be exacerbated by uh, low liquidity conditions. Thank so you very much up. for uh, coming and spending time with us and uh, looking forward to much more because we didn't even get to the Mexican uh, peso. I would like to talk to you about Political that. Political story. Yes, indeed. Lan Ann Nguyen, our FX reporter for Bloomberg News. Much appreciated. Tobacco sales. Well, that includes cigarettes, but also smokeless tobacco. And here to help us understand the dynamic at work in the industry is Ken Shea, our senior analyst, global food, beverages, and tobacco for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ken, thanks for being with us. Let's start off by just describing the global cigarette market. We'll get to smokeless products in a moment. How big is the market? Who are the leaders? And what are the challenges? Yeah, hi, Tim. Happy holidays. Um, Thanks for having me aboard here. Yeah, we've been looking at the global tobacco industry for years, and a report we put out the other day is that um, we're getting concerned that this industry is showing uh, a decline in cigarette sales after many, many years of increases. It's now could be an inflection point. It's a large industry globally. It's about a $680 billion in U.S. dollar business. The, the challenge for these companies, though, it's 90% of tobacco product sales, and it's on the decline. So if it's on the decline, what are the tobacco companies doing in order to make up for that shortfall? So what they've been doing in recent years is investing heavily in what they, what they call next-generation products, which are basically non-combustible devices. When I say non-combustible, health advocates have uh, for a while now stated that it's not the nicotine that causes harm, but it's actually the, 
the uh, combustion and the, the smoke that uh, consumers inhale. So the idea is with, through the FDA and health officials uh, prodding to some degree, uh, these companies are, are moving to um, versions where they have nicotine, but they uh, don't cause smoke. So they deliver some of the satisfaction smokers crave uh, these products like e-cigarettes. And now you're seeing these things called heat not burns, which are basically a similar thing, except it has tobacco in it instead of um, nicotine flavored oils. So they're turning to those kind of products as well as snuff, which has been around a long time, uh, smoking tobacco and pipes. Um, but collectively, they only comprise you know, about 10%, 11% of sales. So the idea here is, will the fall in cigarette uh, consumption uh, outweigh uh, the rise in these other products, which are still small in total? Is the market in China really the defining market? It is from uh, a total, uh, you know, global perspective. I mean, China consumes over 40% of world cigarettes. And so what you're seeing there is um, a more restrictive policy there in China about uh, where smokers can light up. Um, they are, you know, uh, keeping them out of uh, public places, uh, at workplaces and so on. Because they recognize, I think, down the road that the health care costs of treating, you know, these smokers and related harm is a real problem on their society. So um, and in addition, also raising prices. Um, you know, the conundrum is that the, the cigarette industry over there, it's, it's a monopoly. It, it, it contributes about 10 percent of tax revenues. So they're mindful of that as well. They want to reduce smoking in the country, but at the same time, uh, I think a manageable uh, reduction is probably ideal for them. Is the case similar in Japan, where uh, Japan tobacco uh, pays uh, high taxes and therefore it becomes, as you say, a kind of catch-22? You don't want to put them out of business because they pay the taxes, yet the products that they sell uh, are known to cause cancer. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's um, actually a big issue right now because in Japan, uh, actually, <clears throat> Japan sales for cigarettes are going to be probably down close to 10% this year. And a lot of it is uh, because consumers are moving to, as I mentioned before, the heat not burn products, so basically a non-combustible version of you know, cigarettes, uh, which Philip Morris International is leading the charge on in Japan, for that matter. And so what you're seeing is a lot of the consumers are moving from conventional cigarettes to these devices. And so what it's leaving the um, governments to try to figure out what is the appropriate level of taxation to put on these non-combustible devices. They want to be mindful of, you know, improving societal health. But at the same time, they don't want to give up a lot of tax revenue. So it's a, it's a real important issue right now. Is there any evidence that suggests that these uh, heat not burn or the vapor products uh, do not cause the same kinds of health problems that we know come from smoking tobacco? Well, I think there's no definitive proof, but I think there's a growing body of scientists, um, you know, uh, endorsement that these products can certainly improve upon conventional cigarettes. Another important issue, you know, is the whole notion of what the industry experts or industry followers call the continuum of risk. Basically, in plain English, that means each product has a relative risk associated with it. You know, on one end, think of like the highest harm, which is conventional cigarettes. On the far right, you could think of non-combustible cigarettes or smokeless tobacco because there's no combustion. And while those latter products are not perfectly safe, um, the idea is that because they could 
help societal uh, health in general if, if, if consumers gravitate towards them. Isn't that a good thing? And so, so some, some nations are uh, grappling with that issue faster than others. And I would guess that the combination, the, the consolidation rather in the tobacco industry makes pricing uh, something that they can control. Yeah, that's right. You know, you have a, a market that's controlled by essentially three, four, depending on the market you're in, producers, as opposed to giving like a, a consumer good like a breakfast cereals or a bakery product or something like that. You know, you have um, more control and support over uh, pricing activity, particularly in the U.S. You know, the, the top three producers control, you know, 80% plus market share. They tend to move in tandem, not always, right. but, um, you know, the pricing tends to be on the rise. You don't see tobacco cigarette prices falling much. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks very much. Uh, Ken Shea, Senior Analyst for Global Food, Beverages, and Tobacco for Bloomberg Intelligence. It all began in 2003 and in 2007. The effort NextGen, it's supposed to create the next generation air traffic control system for the U.S. Here to help us understand this issue and what's next for it is Pancho Kinney, former director of strategy at the White House Drug Policy Office and a former policy director at the White House Office of Homeland Security. Mr. Kinney, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, currently, you're at the GSIS, the Global Security. Security and Innovative Strategies Consulting Business, what would they say if they were presented, if, if your company, the, the consulting company, was presented with this plan in a kind of clean slate uh, approach? Would it have really focused on this multi-billion dollar and more than a decade-long project? Well, we would say that it's not in the interest of most Americans to have a de facto privatization of the air traffic control system in the United States. Why is that? Because what would happen is when you have the airlines directing investments in the air traffic control system, they are going to direct the investments where they're going to get the largest return on their investment, and those are on the larger airports and there's 30-some large hubs in the United States, ranging from the busiest Atlanta with 50 million emplanements down to Portland or PDX, which has approximately 9 million emplanements. They're going to direct investment in air traffic control systems in those airfields where they fly the greatest number of passengers. So this would potentially result in a degrading of the air traffic control system at the lesser-served airports, smaller ones across the United States. All right. Well, let's just go through some of the portions of this planned uh, next generation project. Uh, for example, integrated flight planning, right? Allows immediate access to weather information through one data source. I mean, is that something that, don't we already have that? Well, I, I think the next generation is an absolutely rock-solid proposal. Uh, the point that I wanted to focus on today was the proposed privatization of air traffic control system and placing it under a private board that's dominated by commercial airlines. In fact, what that would do is it would probably result in delays of implementation of next gen, which is absolutely a good policy. Well, I was just going to get, go through the list only because this is something that has been paid for by the taxpayer 
whether it's the integrated flight planning or departure management, cruise uh, management, the arrival management, and so on, uh, surface traffic at, at airports. This is all something that was put together by the uh, uh, administration, by the Federal Aviation Administration. Why would it? Why would you want to give private control over something that the public has paid for? Well, that's exactly the point. You wouldn't want to do that. It, it just is counterintuitive to do that. So this is what an effort on the part of the airline industry in order to mold the air traffic control system to their liking. I would think that's a good way of phrasing it. Yes, sir. Okay. What's the alternative that you foresee? Because let's say that they are going to move ahead with this privatization because of current political issues. Is there a way to save what's good about the old system as well as introducing the new system? Yes, there is. And and that is to reauthorize the Federal Aviation Administration and enabling it to maintain its role as the controller of the national air traffic control system. Explain to people why that has not, this, this, this secure and steady and reliable funding source hasn't been granted to the FAA and also uh, access for capital to do infrastructure projects. What is the current limitation? Well, the limitation, first of all, is that the airlines have been pushing relentlessly to privatize air traffic control. Uh, I, I know that there, there's some that, that refer to Washington as a swamp. Um, I, I won't necessarily agree to that terminology, but I think that it is true that there are lobbyists and there are individuals and organizations that buy access and gain influence so that their concerns and their interests are reflected in legislation. And that is one of the problems that we face, is that the airlines have been relentlessly supporting the privatization of air traffic control system. And the House reauthorization bill for the Federal Aviation Administration uh, that was championed by Representative Schuster did include the privatization of air traffic control system. The Senate bill did not. Right. So uh, what is your alternative? What are you going to do? Well, the alternative, I think, is for um, communities that stand to lose in the privatization, and those would be the communities that have, that have commercial airports that are small hubs and, and non-hubs, to go to their representatives and their senators and say, this is not in the interest of our communities to have this privatization occur. But having said that, I believe that the Next Gen Advisory Committee, which was actually formed at the request of the uh, FAA, uh, it's been chaired by an airline CEO since it was created in 2010. Well, I think that that probably is not a bad thing because what it does is it results in common sense solutions that will enable air traffic control and airspace management to be more effective. But when you have a board, a private board that's dominated by the commercial airlines directing investment in the air traffic control system, as opposed to providing advice on modernization and next-gen types of solutions, then I think you've got another problem. Right. And that makes it just more difficult to implement this because the spending seems to be controlled at a very micro level. Isn't that true? Well, it, it, it could be, and I think that what you'll find, what you may find, is that the spending will be directed towards the larger 
airports. And so there will be winners at the larger level, at the macro level, and at the micro level, those hundreds of commercial airliners that are vital, whether it's in Fayetteville, North Carolina, or Dothan, Alabama, they will stand um, a possibility of having less investment, less, uh, lesser modernization of traffic control systems, and the possibility of increased user fees. And, and just to make it clear, you're not against any of the technological improvements that are being offered as part of NextGen. What you're focused on is who will actually control this NextGen system. Yes, it's who, how will the investments be decided Right. That's the main concern, I think. It's not, it's not the technology, it's not the modernization, which is required and a good thing uh, and reflects new technologies that, that, are, that are available, but it's the decisions on where those investments are going to be made. And what do you, do you have a, a percentage whether you think that this is going to uh, change the, the, the sort of political zeitgeist to make this happen, or uh, are you kind of at the last innings? I think that um, there's still an, an opportunity. We're, we're probably, you know, like in the seventh inning, so to speak, because of the fact that the um, FAA's authorization expires in March, right. um, which means that um, there's still time for uh, members of Congress and, and senators to, to get engaged and to protect the, um, you know, the, the core interests of their communities. Um, but as as may often happen, things may get you know the can may get kicked down the road over here, and um, and there could be some interim measure that just right. postpones this. Well, such as Washington. Thank you very much, uh, Pancho Kenny, Director of Operations, GSIS. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.